Ezra, Nehemiah. Those are some of the books that you don't really know where to find them if somebody says turn to Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra or Nehemiah. Um, they come at the end of, or close to the end here, of the historical section of our Bible as we have it. So you may see in the table of contents they come um, after Chronicles and before Esther. Esther then is the last of the historical books. So what we've done, if you think about the last, uh, since Joshua, we've been covering the historical books. This is getting really to the end of Israel uh, before the 400 years of silence before Christ comes. We're getting right up to the end. They've, they've been sent into exile, and we saw that left over from Chronicles. And they have, um, after 70 years now, started returning to the land. So this is what we call the second temple period of the life of Israel because the Solomon, Solomon's temple had been destroyed at the time of the conquest of the land that sent the nation into exile into Babylon. So in all of our records before AD 185, so that's the second century AD, these books are treated as one. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they have been historically one book until uh, after a couple uh, 150 years after the life of Christ. And they tell of the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the exile. Again, what we call the Second Temple Period. Um, MVP, again, refers to Miles Van Pelt, uh, upon whom I lean heavily as I'm preparing this. Uh, this week, the Miles Van Pelt chapter was written by Mark Futado. He says, The book of Ezra Nehemiah is the next to last book in the third division of the Hebrew canon, the writings. So this is actually talking about a different order than what I just mentioned about historical books. Uh, and you may uh, remember if you look back at the um, that that timeline. This this comes at the end of the writing section. So, the uh, in the order of the writings, this is the second to last book in the entire um, Old Testament. Or yeah, Old Testament. Only Chronicles comes after it. So in our Bible, they're in reverse order. Uh, in the Hebrew order, uh, the Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah comes before Chronicles. And Chronicles, then, is the last book in the Old Testament. Um, the purpose of this third division of the Hebrew canon is to instruct God's people in how to live out the covenant established in the first division, the Torah. So this is continuing to show what a, what a, how do we live now, even post-exile, faithful to the Torah. Um, so placing Ezra and Nehemiah before Chronicles in the Hebrew canon sets up the expectation of the ideal life with the rebuilt house of God as displayed in Chronicles. So you may remember when we went through Chronicles. Chronicles is a little bit of a rosy look at the kingship of David. Now he's the ideal king and how if he were to reign, um, and it, it basically it eliminates a lot of his sins in order to show this is what the kingly line of David looks like. And so it comes after Ezra Nehemiah, because we're going to find Nehemiah actually ends with a, quite a, uh, a negative note. And, and so this sets up the expectations for, if we rebuild this, what are we looking toward? And then Chronicles comes in and says, it's this ideal Davidic kingship, which we know, of course, comes in Christ 400 years later. And it opens with the decree of Cyrus, Ezra, you may see this Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, so there's his decree that actually was the, if you flip back one page to the end of Second Chronicles, it ends with that same decree. So there's a connection here chronologically, which is why the order in our Bible 
um, actually makes more chronological sense. Uh, and, and that's part of why our canon is ordered that way. Okay, so what are some things that you know about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? I, I don't know that there are any Sunday school stories, if you will, out of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm missing some. What do you remember from these books? Nehemiah building. Mm-hmm. Yep, Nehemiah built the wall. So the reconstruction, right? Absolutely, yeah. Nehemiah. Right. Yeah. So the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem came first. Yes? No. The temple came first? And then the walls? Okay. Yeah, so Nehemiah came. He was a third wave and rebuilt the walls. Okay. Zerubbabel came early, first wave started to rebuild the temple, and I believe it was completed. I don't know if it was under Ezra or Nehemiah, but the wall was begun at least later than the temple. But yeah, yeah, so so Nehemiah coming and building the walls. Um, he had a good plan to put every family in charge of their own section of the wall. That's, that's right, yeah. It, it, it describes to you this family um, built the wall from this point to this point, and then these people built the wall from this point to this point. Uh, and yeah, if, if it's guarding your house, you're going to build it pretty well. That's the passage that stands out to me in in these books. Nehemiah 8. This is when Ezra, the scribe who's skilled, we're told, in the law of Moses, builds a platform and reads the word of God all day to the nation of Israel. Uh, And it's a a revolutionary moment for for Israel. We'll get there. Any others? That's right. There were lots of neighboring nations who were upset, and they started making up these rumors. They said, well, we're going we're gonna to tell the king of Persia that, uh, that you're just trying to rebel. And so it created these false um, accusations to try to discourage the building of the wall, especially at the time of Nehemiah. Uh, they had plenty of discouragement and rivals. Yeah. Yes? Uh, the elders from seeing the completed temple left. Yes. Yes, those who had seen the temple before its destruction and had endured the 70-year exile and came back and they saw it be beginning to be built, they wept. They were so sad because it was so disappointing. It did not match the former glory of Solomon's temple. Okay, let's jump in here to the history and the context Cyrus's decree that starts Ezra uh, is dated to about 538 BC, thus the beginning of the book. Ezra and Nehemiah opens with history from 539 to 515. So this first chunk of uh, Ezra, which you'll see on the outline, is um, Roman numeral one. This is uh, this covers a I'm trying to do my math here 24 year period. Nope, 21 year period. I can never do the math when it's in BC. 24 year period. Uh, And then it skips about 50 years to the arrival of Ezra. So the first wave is coming to rebuild the temple with Zerubbabel. The second wave comes with Ezra about 50 years later in 458 BC. And then Nehemiah arrived 14 years later in 445 BC. And then the the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah concludes around 433 BC. Daniel occurred between Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's just an interesting tidbit to kind of root you here. We'll get to that later. Uh, It's not in this section because it's not a historical book. It's in with the prophets. And then Esther occurs after Ezra 6, but 20 years before Ezra 7. 
So you see that divide, that 50-year divide between the first chunk and then the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah? In that 50-year chunk, um, the story of Esther happens in Persia. So those, uh, oh yeah, and then there's one more here. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi also prophesied during these days. So here we're at the very chronological end of what's happening in the Old Testament. Yes? Yeah, so Esther was still in Persia. Uh, she, her story, she's in the king's harem. So she's, she's not one of these returnees to, to Israel. So that's why her story feels quite different. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. It, it, it is a, you're right, it's a very different focus. Kind of like uh, what Ruth was. It really zoned in on one story, and, which is to show God's faithfulness in the midst of what looks like questioning whether God is faithful in this. Um, so does that... I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's look at the background issues. Authorship is unknown. Some believe the author um, of Ezra and Nehemiah is the same author as the chronicler who wrote Chronicles. It was The book was probably completed around 400 BC, and some suggest it was largely written by Ezra and Nehemiah as follows, specifically these sections, and maybe somebody pieced it together later. It seems Ezra authored Ezra chapters 7 through 10 and Nehemiah 8 and maybe Nehemiah 9 and 10. And tradition holds him to be the final uh, author um, because Ezra 7, 6 tells us he was a scribe and he was skilled. So it would make sense that he's somebody who could have written this. And then if Ezra has written those sections, Nehemiah, um, based on the content of it, looks like could have uh, authored Nehemiah 1 through 7 and then maybe chapters 11 through 13 as well. And then perhaps later pieced together. Yes. No, it didn't show, and I think there may be other parts missing too. Uh, that's that's part of the question. Like we, the authorship's just kind of unknown. Yeah, and it could have been the chronicler who pieced that together at the end of Chronicles, you know, just retelling some of it. Um, somebody who witnessed the first wave. I'm not sure, but this came. You have to remember this. It was written um, 150 years after this first wave of rebuilding. So it was probably um, an oral tradition passed down or a written tradition passed down uh, to the person who completed it. Okay. And perhaps Ezra and Nehemiah's own writings are what were passed down. Um, That would make sense that those parts in particular had come from the hands of Ezra and or Nehemiah. So a general outline here. The first chunk, Ezra 1.1 through chapter 6. This is the return of the exiles and rebuilding of the temple. And then there's the return of Ezra and the rebuilding of the community. And then there's the return of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. And then there's the return of the exiles and rebuilding of the community. So um, I know that's, that's repetitive, but that uh, seems to be intentional. Thoughts? Questions? Okay. Main themes here are the restoration of the temple of God and of the city of God, along with the reformation of the people of God, all in keeping with the Torah. So this is a people who have been wounded, sent into exile. They've returned to the land, and they're trying to be faithful to God's word. And that includes restoring the temple and the city and the people themselves. 
So uh, we're going to break this down and look specifically at rebuilding the house, that is the temple, rebuilding the people, and then uh, the dependence on the word of God here. So rebuilding the house of God. I don't often bring in Hebrew words because they're uh, seldom useful. Uh, but here, Cyrus's decree was for a barit, or a temple. All right, so Cyrus sent this decree that, that these people can go back. Now, um, anybody know why all of a sudden Israelites can return to Israel and build this temple? What was the, what was the shift there in world powers? Yeah. So when you shift it from Babylonians to Persians, how the Persians have a bunch of reform policy that involved making nice with locals in order to better gain their support? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like the Persian uh, leaders had a much better understanding of how people work. Rather than just oppressing them and obliterating them, they actually encouraged them to return to their homeland, rebuild their temple. They figured it's much easier to govern happy people. And so the Persians came in and overthrew Babylon. And uh, if you've got a prosperous, happy people, you'll probably get more taxes sent back. Um, so it seems to be that's the, the tack that was taken by the Persian government. Uh, now there is, we have to remember, this is not, it sounds like it's just a bunch of worldly things happening. This is God working behind the scenes. God is directing these things. He prophesied this was going to happen. He, I, I'm looking for a quote from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 24. Says this The whole land, speaking of Israel, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. And then you could flip over to Jeremiah 29 and see even more details for God's uh, plan for returning them. Uh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So God had prophesied that and he's working through this overthrow of government to bring his people back to Israel. So I'm sorry, I, we got a little bit, we digressed a little bit there, but that was a good digression. So Cyrus wrote this decree now that he's in charge of the land. He sent these people back, told them to rebuild the temple, sent with them a bunch of the temple elements that Nebuchadnezzar had taken when it was destroyed. And so they returned to build this barit. Now Ezra Nehemiah uses that word barit, not just in relationship to a building, but to describe a much larger concept. The concept of the people, the temple. Yes, the temple, but also the city. And and the inhabitants of the city and the worshipers of the temple. So it's not just a restricted use in, in terms of a building. It's, it's, it's talking about all the activity there of the people of God back in the promised land. That's the barit of God, the house of God. And so Ezra Nehemiah uses that term in an expanded sense. And so if you look at uh, Nehemiah 12, so flip over there, which is second to last chapter in, in the book. It would be a wonderful conclusion to a positive depiction of the restoration of God's house because uh, you see there's uh, lots of good things happening in this rebuilt barit. There are priests and Levites who are standing at their posts doing what they're supposed to do. There's the dedication of the wall. And then there is the service at the temple. And so it looks like things are coming to, um, it seems like momentum is picking up and it's about to return to its former glory. And then chapter 13 comes. 
and it turns into a litany of failures in Nehemiah 13. And it functions basically to say the story is to be continued. There's, there's got to be something more than this half-hearted restoration. So it seems. Um, and uh, let's see, where is it? Yes. Absolutely. That's exactly it. Paul is picking up on, on that theme of um, the temple is, is not a specific building. It is the people of God. It is the church. It is. Uh, and as we see, actually, well, now's a good time to do this. Flip over to uh, Ezra chapter six. One of the big problems here in Nehemiah 13, um, I'm just going to finish up here in Nehemiah 13 as we're going to Ezra 6. Uh, Nehemiah says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. It sounds racist. Right? I'll go ahead and use that word because that's going to be the accusation that somebody throws at us until we go and look at Ezra 6. And we see what's really going on here. This is not about race. This temple that is being built is the people of God that, that you're talking about and that Paul picks up on that Peter picks up on. It's this idea that the temple of God is being built as God's people from all nations, I believe. Um, yeah, so here in Ezra 6, you see they're pa- celebrating Passover for the first time after returning to the land. And who's included? All the Jews. And here in verse 21, the Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. That's who makes up the temple. That's who God is bringing together in this barit of God. It's the people who separate themselves from the wicked ways of the world. This is not about the color of their skin. This is not about where they're from. This is about separating yourself from the only other race, and that's the race of the wicked one, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And so that's what's going on uh, here was as we look at the house of God being built. Thoughts on that? Questions on that? Okay, let's keep going. Let's talk about the people of God. Uh, God uh, uses great leaders, but also he uses ordinary people to rebuild his barit. This uh, you see in Ezra 2, and I believe in Ezra 8 as well. Yes, there's another genealogy in Ezra 8. So Ezra 2 is just the first wave of people who come back. Uh, if you've not looked at Ezra 2 before, go look at it. It's, uh, it's got just a lot of names. A lot of people say, well, why? What's the point? And what are all, what's the point of all these numbers? Uh, a couple things. First of all, it tells you, you too are a part of this history of Israel, these people who have returned from exile. This is your family. These are your names. A lot of these names are um, ones that you could pick up on in, uh, in, in prior genealogies. You can see to whom these people belong, that this is their, uh, their family. Uh, but also, 
sorry, that's the first wave. And then uh, Ezra 8 is one of the other waves. But there are others that I, I think, I believe are not documented as well. Um, there's been some discussion even in the, in some of my own circles, my own pastor friends, uh, they, they wonder how much of the ministry of the church belongs to the people and how much belongs to the ordained um, men, if you will. Um, I would say, let's flip over to Ephesians 4 for a moment. And this is something you'll see under the Approaching the New Testament section. It's also, uh, I believe, implicit here in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I won't tell you how personally convicting this passage is right now. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's that same barit. That's the people of God that is being built up. And it is the work of the people of God who have been equipped. And I don't think that's referring just to ordained men. I believe that is referring to all these people who helped build the wall. All these people who returned and brought their families and stepped out in faith and said, we're going to go, we're going to build this place. Um, and I think that has um, some especially poignant parallels for a group like us as a church plant. Um, there, You know there is absolutely no way I can help us all grow out of being like children. This, this, is, this is the work of the people of the church. Um, and that's what we see a glimpse of here in Ezra and Nehemiah. That barit, that house of God, it's, it's a rich image, the people of God. Um, B-A-R-E-Y-T. What's the R? Um, it is by, that's why I put that Y in there. You're so right. I, I'm saying it wrong. It's it's by it, thank you. Is that that middle uh, letter there is a yod, not a um, not the, not a resh. Thank you, thank you for correcting me. By it, so it's b a y i t. See, I need y'all's help. <laughs> Uh, soon after Ezra, this is here, the written word of God. Soon after Ezra and Nehemiah came, um, after these books were done, soon after that came 400 years of silence. In the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, however, they were people of the book. Uh, I think one of the best uh, names that Christians have received over the last couple thousand years is a name from the Muslims. They call us the people of the book. Uh, and I hope that we continue to be that, people of the word of God. Um, in Ezra 3.2, the altar was rebuilt how? As it was written in the law of Moses. In 7.6, Ezra was a scribe skilled what? In the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given. Uh, Ezra 7.10, for Ezra set his heart to study what? The law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. 
Ezra 10.3, Therefore let us make a covenant with our God and put away all these wives and their children and let it be done according to the law. Nehemiah 8, the people gathered, Ezra uh, read, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then at that same time in that gathering, the Levites and other men helped the people to understand the law. And I had a bunch of other texts typed out here, 8.14 and 20 and 10.29 and 30 and 35 and 39 and 12.44 and 13.3, and then I ran out of space. So I erased them. But you can go look those up and see all these other examples of how uh, they did what they were doing according to the written word of God. Let's look at Nehemiah 8. Once the wall was completed, the people gathered in the square, and Ezra read from the book of the law of Moses. Uh, A lot of people assume it was Deuteronomy, but that's irrelevant because Deuteronomy has all that same core of the whole Torah. How did they respond according to Nehemiah 8, verses 5 and 6? They stood to hear it, stood at attention to listen. And Ezra blessed the Lord, verse 6, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. His word led them to worship, cut to the quick, convicted them. And they this was, in a sense, a covenant renewal service. This is where they... in a, uh, they were reignited to say, uh, to, to be dedicated to their God, and, and they saw their sin. Nehemiah 9, flip over to um, end of chapter 8, uh, into chapter 9, uh, they, they start to celebrate the Feast of Booths, and, and some of them are so uh, stuck on, on their offenses that they fail to see God's steadfast love. Uh, they're so caught up in, in, in their sin that they fail to see the forgiveness. Uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 10, And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Repentance, confession and repentance and forgiveness are a beautiful day of joy. This is a day of holiness and then and of celebration. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And then they celebrated the Feast of Booths according to the law. And then uh, Nehemiah 9 is a beautiful confession of sin that leads uh, in verses 1 through 5 specifically to confession. And then it leads to praise starting in verse 6. David talked about that in Psalm 51, how upon confession and forgiveness, it leads to praise. It leads to the restoration of, um, of the temple worship. Uh, and, and here in Nehemiah 9, we see it. They confess their sins, the word of God. They're forgiven by the word of God, by the, the truth that they find in the word of God. And, and it leads them to praise. We've actually at times used Nehemiah 9 in our morning services 
uh, as a call to worship or an assurance of forgiveness. Uh, and in Nehemiah 9, starting in verse 6 all the way through 38, this praise that's through the rest of the chapter, long chapter, um, that praise simply does a lot of re- recounting who God is, what God has done, and it tells about the history of who God is and, and his relationship to Israel. So in verse 6, you see that God is Lord alone. He's the creator. In verse 7, he called Abram and he kept his promise in verse 8. In verse 9, he freed Israel from Egypt and led them through the Red Sea and fed them in the wilderness. And then down to verse 17, he's patient with stiff-necked people. In verse 22, he gave kingdoms to them. In verse 23, he multiplied their children. In verse 24, he gave them the land. In verse 28, he gave them trials from which they cried out to God. And in verse 30, he spoke to them by the prophets and he's patient to them throughout this process. And so that's uh, a lot of what... um, I think that's a good model for us as we consider how do we praise God? Let's let's recount his goodness to us as we confess our sins. And um, remember that in when we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How do you know that? Well, just look at how faithful he's been. Remind yourself of what he's done. His character is consistent and how he's dealt with us and how he will deal with us. And then finally, one last note. Uh, you can, well, let's, let's do a quick skim there of the approaching the New Testament. Um, Jesus is Zerubbabel, the one who returned, the son of David, the one who returned to rebuild the temple because Jesus is that temple that was rebuilt. And he is the one in whom we all are found as this new um, bayit of God, house of God. Uh, the expanding bayit of God, including the celebration of a holy people in a holy city at a holy temple, along with that flop into faithlessness in Nehemiah 13, anticipates Christ. He's the only true holy space. He's the only true temple. Uh, And he is the one anticipated by the temple and the second temple. And then Christ is the cornerstone of the true holy temple in Ephesians 2. uh, The true temple is the church in Christ, and it will all be consummated in Christ's return. And I think uh, ending on 1 Peter chapter 2 is a helpful uh, thing to remind ourselves. Uh, I'm just going to flip over there because I will misquote it. 1 Peter chapter 2. Blessed be, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result. I am reading the wrong passage. I was like, it's in verse, it's in verse eight, isn't it? I kept looking ahead and like, it's not in verse eight. It's chapter two. It's still as a beautiful passage though, wasn't it? <laughs> chapter two, verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense.
that is that true temple. Um, and it is what we live in by God's grace. And we saw it in Christ when he rose up on that third day, rebuilt that temple for us, where our sins are truly forgiven, where we find communion with our God. Any concluding thoughts? Can you read it for us? Sure. It says, but you who are a chosen race and royal priesthood. Yeah. A yeah. Nation of people, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we could keep reading. I mean, it's just beautiful. We're we're gonna get to First Peter here in August. That'll be our sermon series for a little while. Hopefully I'll have a better understanding of what's going on in the texts when we get there. No, that, that's absolutely right. Verse 9, you are the, a cho- chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have uh, once again shown us in your word how much you have done for your people. Would we be always in awe of how you have worked redemption, even as you have brought world powers to rise and fall. It's all according to your plan and your purpose. Teach us to be grateful. Teach us to be um, students of your word. and Help us to be humble people who come to be um, filled up by this grace that you pour out to us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.